Hi, I'm Bill Fegis, and welcome to our Business Transformation 101 podcast. In prior postings, we discussed what makes an A player, how to interview for A players, and creating a robust talent acquisition process. For today's podcast, we have with us Dr. Patrick Hopp, who is a partner with Leadership Development Worldwide, LLC. LDW is a team of business psychologists and consultants with exceptional insight into organizations, leaders, and teams, and a deep understanding of their clients' culture, values, and business priorities. Through decades of outstanding performance, they have built collaborative relationships and delivered results to their premier global client list. Patrick specializes in executive selection, coaching, and leadership development training, working with both individuals and teams to maximize their effectiveness and opportunities for success. For more than 15 years, he has worked with mid and senior level leaders in a variety of industries to help them select and build high performing talent. His work draws heavily from research and best practices in organizational behavior and applied psychology, emphasizing self-awareness and learning through real-time feedback. I have the good fortune of working with Patrick and the LDW team for the past 20 plus years in multiple companies. LDW has been a key partner in supporting our leadership teams in acquiring, assessing, and developing talent. Patrick will provide his thoughts and insights on talent acquisition today, including key elements necessary to identify and hire aid players, key things to avoid in your hiring processes, and finally, pros and cons of testing, utilizing Predictive Index, Wonderlick, Myers-Briggs, and other testing protocols. Patrick, welcome to our podcast on talent acquisition, and thanks for taking the time to provide some insights to our listeners. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Good to, to be with you again. It's been a while since we had a chance to work together, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. So thanks for yes, inviting me. Great. Well, once again, we appreciate you joining us and hopefully the listeners will learn a lot from today's uh, podcast. So let's jump right into it and we'll start with uh, identifying and hiring A players. How would you, uh, based on your experience, define an A player and, and what are the key elements in assessing whether a candidate is an A player? Yeah, great question. So, you know, you hear people talking about the importance of having A players on their team for obvious reasons, but it is probably you know, not the case that people have a universal definition for, you know, what an A player is. So I would define an A player from a, a number of different perspectives. You know, the, the most obvious one being that an A player needs to be someone who, you know, consistently performs well in the critical parts of the job that are you know, required to have the business succeed, right? So, you know, they're, they're gonna need to, you know, hit their KPIs and deliverables in a really consistent way and do high quality work. That hopefully goes without saying. But then um, other things that may be a little less obvious is that I think A players are also people that not only bring a lot of value to the organization in the present, but also have the potential to add value in the future. So they're, they're people that are likely to do well, not only in their current role, but can move in to new roles. And sometimes that gets a little tricky because you not, might not know exactly what that new role is gonna look like because business is dynamic, it's evolving, it's changing. You, know, you might have a good idea about what their manager or their boss does. So that's one sort of definition of what 
um, potential to succeed at the next level is. But given the fact that you could be in a completely different market or you know, move into a different type of vertical, you want to have people on your team that have you know, what we sometimes call the learning agility to think quickly on their feet, to pick up new skills, um, apply the lessons that they've acquired in, in previous roles and apply that in ways that allow them to get traction and help move the organization forward in sometimes some, some hard to predict ways. Um, so that's the second thing that comes to mind. And then finally, I would say um, an A player is somebody who's able to add value not only in their own sort of immediate domain, um, whether that's in their, their role and the people they're leading, but they also help to kind of raise the bar for the people around them. So they push and challenge and support people to do their best work. And that has you know, the, the added effect over time of just raising the whole capability of the organization. Hey, um, in your uh, experience, would you say, I mean, one of the, the concepts that I think is interesting about A players is that A players are defined in a context. Uh, so the, the, the classic example I use is, I, I've seen this a million times through my career of, is a, and I'm not picking on the sales and marketing mm. people, but you know, how, how many times have you seen a, a great salesperson, be it, a, you know, an individual salesperson or a, a regional salesperson um, get promoted to the VP of sales and marketing position? And, and the reason is, wow, they did such a great job as the regional sales manager or the sales engineer that, that they're the, uh, the obvious choice for the VP of sales and marketing. And then you know, there's a, there's a complete disaster when that happens mm. because while they were an A player in the one role, being an A player in this other role isn't necessarily the same thing. I mean, is that a common situation you see? Yeah, I think so, for, probably for a couple of different reasons. Yeah, I mean, the, the skill set required to be a, you know, a, an A player, an individual contributor role isn't necessarily the same skill that set that's required. Um, at a VP level or, a, you know, a role that's obviously more about leading and motivating um, groups of people and, you know, creating, a, you know, an overall vision. Some people are a lot better at execution and they've got the sort of self-will and discipline to really apply themselves and push through obstacles, um, you know, bring their A game uh, for themselves, but they have a hard time sort of turning that off, stepping it back taking a step back, allowing other people to sort of shine mm -hmm. and helping them um, to do their best. So it's a different skill set for sure. And, yeah. you know, sometimes, um, you know, those things generalize, you know, better than, than others. It sort of depends on the role I think about how, how often I see people sort of quickly plateau as an individual contributor versus being able to, to make the shift. Yeah. Yeah, and this kind of fits with um, one of the concepts we talked about in an earlier posting was a, a scorecard to try and identify these key things about yeah. the role. And to your point, so obviously the, the scorecard for the VP of sales and marketing is going to look significantly different than that for the regional sales manager. And that, that kind of drive homes, drives home the point of making sure you, you build that scorecard the right way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's important to make sure that you've got multiple people 
offering their input to those scorecards too, right? So, you know, a, a manager or a senior level sort of leader obviously has one point of view on what it means to be um, an effective sort of regional sales head, for instance, an example you're using. But if you ask their direct reports, they might have a different point of view, right? So getting all the people that that, that new hire is going to have to work with involved in the process of creating that scorecard becomes really important because they're going to have to be effective with that whole range of score uh, stakeholders, not just the, the person they're reporting to. Right. And you, you, meant, you mentioned another point, which I think is an interesting one of, of you know, you have an A player in an individual contributor role and, um, you know, they, they kind of reach the, the top and, but they're, they're happy there. And, and my assumption is, Hey, they can continue to be an A player just because they're, you know, they're, they've topped out and are not looking to move forward. Doesn't necessarily mean they're no longer an A player. Well, th that's right. Although the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is, you know, does that person then become, you know, what we sometimes call a blocker, right? So, you know, they might be an A player and doing everything that you ask them in some ways more in that, that position that they've been hired for. But, you know, chances are if you've got other A players um, on the team and some of those might be reporting to that person, then they're going to get frustrated because there's not going to be opportunities or career paths that open up. And so you might sort of make an argument for that it would be you know, perhaps better for the long-term performance of the company to have you know, a solid B or B plus player in that role who's good at sort of managing others and equipping and coaching them to, to move up quickly through the ranks and take on other you know, responsibility. Great point. And, and, uh, hadn't thought about that, but blockers can be a, a big challenge sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, so. Okay, so um, great. So, so thanks for that, Patrick. The, the second question um, we had for you was, are there common mistakes that organizations make in identifying and selecting A players? And, and how can of, you know, our listeners avoid making these mistakes or minimizing them at the very least? Yeah, I think we've, you know, maybe already alluded to a couple of these. So, you know, one sort of major category of mistakes that, that I would identify is that, you know, people sometimes are just too short-sighted. They're too focused on the here and now and today, you know, what they need, um, you know, to achieve some short-term goal or objective within the organization. And they don't necessarily think about, okay, what's going to happen after we've accomplished that and check that off our box. Mm -hmm. Is this person that we're hiring and bringing in to help us with this problem of today, are they really going to be able to sustain um, adding value um, and help us accomplish our objectives and solve problems that are going to be more about the future or tomorrow. So I think it's really important to, to not sort of um, fall victim to the, you know, the, the trap of wanting to jump right on the, the, the candidates that you know are going to you know, help you accomplish these immediate goals but, and then failing to think about what's gonna happen down, down the line. So um, those are some of the things that immediately come to mind there. And then you know, sometimes you know, that's easier said than done because 
like I was alluding to before, you, you might not even know what some of those challenges are going to look like. I mean, if everybody knew where the market was going to be in, you know, three or five years, they'd all, they'd all be rich playing the stock market, right? So you have to sort of use your best intuition and, and think through, um, you know, what those challenges might look like. And then, you know, try to find people that have the, the versatility and potential to help you kind of go in, in, the, in these directions, even if some of them, you know, are clearly defined. So being able to um, sort of navigate through ambiguity ends up being, I think, a pretty uh, important quality for people. And then, you know, sometimes managers uh, end up um, really, I think, kind of trying to hire people that look too much like themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they bring in people that, you know, they know uh, they're going to get along with, you know, that's all obviously important. But they probably, you know, assume that um, if someone were to be able to do the job in the way they did, they'd be successful at it. But that, you know, sometimes overlooks the importance of having some diversity of thought and approach and background on your team. Um, and then there may be more than one, you know, right way or good way to, to get some of these problems solved. And if you just focus too much on the way that they've been solved in the past, I think, again, it comes back to being a bit short-sighted. Right. And that, that kind of hits back on your point, too, about... Um getting the team involved in the definition of the scorecard. And I assume also getting the team involved in the interviewing process. Yeah, I think that it's a really important predictor of success, making sure you get all the, the people you can involved, um, you know, for a number of reasons. When you, you get that diversity of thought, you get better buy-in right from the beginning. Um, those people then are more likely to be advocates for the person and help them succeed. They're gonna expose them to um, you know, the things that they're going to need to um, access in the way of information and people as they get up to speed in the job. And they're going to be, you know, champions for their cause versus, you know, if they weren't involved in the hiring process, you know, what you typically see is a lot of people kind of with a wait and see attitude. They're, they're sitting back and wondering what this new guy or gal is going to be all about and sort right. of skeptical. <clears throat> Okay, so so let's on this same question, let's drift a little over towards um, you know the selection and specifically interviewing. Um, did a whole thing uh, in one of the earlier posting about structured interviews, and certainly in my, in my personal case, I've I found that to be a a big lever that I didn't have before the. Uh, I think I use the word seat of the pants as, as sort of used to be the way I interviewed people and, um, you know, hey, you interview for an hour and, and then you look at this and you go, hey, this is a huge investment we're making and I'm only spending an hour uh, doing due diligence on this individual. Can you talk a little about, you know, you're obviously you've had done thousands of interviews and you take a... Uh, in-depth, probably three to four hour structured interview approach. And could you tell us a little about that and some of the things, um, you know, that might help people uh, get, get used to that? Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it seems um, shocking to a lot of people to find out that they're going to be interviewed for, you know, three to four, sometimes five hours, if it's a more senior level kind of president or CEO roles. They always wonder, you know, what in the world are we going to talk about for that much time? 
and then they're usually pretty surprised by how quickly the time goes. Um, you know, there's a number of extra key benefits for spending that much time with a person. Um, but I think they kind of boil down to a couple of things. One is the more time you spend with someone, the more data you have. So I'll come back to that in a second. And then the other um, real benefit of these longer interviews is that um, after a while, people sort of forget that they're being interviewed and they just sort of drop their guard and they start to be, be themselves. Right. You know, people who are really good at sort of presenting and showing up um, for a job interview, and most top candidates are good at that, um, you know, they, they sort of anticipate what the right answers are and they prepare for those things. And it's not that they're being, um, you know, disingenuous is that they're wanting to put their best foot forward because they know it's a job interview. And if, you know, if they're interested in the job, you would hope and expect them to do that, but it's not necessarily the best predictor of who's going to show up when the actual job starts. Is it this person that really interviews well, or is it the person um, that's now on the payroll? So um, by taking the time to walk through a person's career and in, in the way that we recommend doing that, is in chronological order. It allows you to collect a lot of data and have a, a, a complete context for how one, one uh, role and experience leads to the next. And typically what you see is that there's some themes and patterns that start to emerge in that you know, three or four hour long conversation. And it starts you know, way back, even sometimes before they ever got their first job. You see some of these things um, appearing in their high school relationships or the, the activities they pursued in college, right? And then those things start to follow them throughout um, their different jobs that they've had. And when that's the case, when there are these sort of clear themes and patterns, it gives you a lot of confidence that those things are likely true about the person. And it's not just this snapshot or um, performance that you're witnessing in a sometimes as short as 30 minute job interview. I mean, you, Right. That's a, a pretty small amount of time with a limited amount of data to go by. But if you've got that longer sort of context and a whole kind of narrative to who the person is right from early on in their life all the way through the present day, you can you'd be pretty assured that that's, those themes and patterns are going to continue um, long after they are on your payroll. So, so those are, the I think, the two main benefits is collecting more data, uh, having an opportunity to really um, see some of these things play out over a longer period of time in their career. And then, like I said, after, you know, an hour, hour and a half, people start to become themselves, their, their guard drops, and it starts to feel like a, a regular conversation. You're going to get less sort of a, a performance from the person, more of a genuine, authentic presentation. Right. And, um, I think you made an interesting point too, which I thought was uh, something I picked up was the whole thing about picking up patterns when you have this much data um, yeah. to go forward. So, okay, great. Um, final question is, you know, LDW utilizes testing as part of its assessment process and, and many companies utilize testing. I've, I've used testing and I'm a proponent of testing, but some people have concerns about using testing in the hiring process. Um, can you just provide some insight on the pros and cons of testing? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think you know testing's usually a good idea again um, because you get more data 
And in theory, it's more objective data. So the interview in the way I described it is, is great. I think that's probably where you should focus most of your attention and put a lot, of, a lot of the weight on your hiring decision. But the testing allows you to flesh out some of that data you get in the interview with some other specific, uh, more sort of quote unquote objective um, pieces of information. So, you, you know, it helps you to begin to generate some what we might call hypotheses about who the person is before you ever sit down with them. So if you have their personality profile in front of you, you know, chances are you can, you know, begin to come up with some ideas about how those things are likely relevant for the job that they're a candidate for and how those things might play themselves out. Um, and then it helps you to be a bit more precise or surgical during your interview and to probe for those things um, and take less of a sort of a shotgun approach. And then, you know, when you, you know, uncover some strengths that you see in that person that are also reflected in the, um, you know, with the personality or cognitive scores that you have, it gives you more confidence that those things are probably actually true and accurate. And it's not, again, just sort of a performance from the person that you're seeing. Um, so those are some of the main benefits. Um, and then I'd say one other that I didn't already mention is that, you know, some of the things that those um, different uh, kind of assessments are designed to measure are pretty hard to probe for interview for on the fly. Like, you know, what are the person's sort of deeper motives or drives? Mm -hmm. uh, what are their overall problem solving or intellectual skills? How do they go about thinking through problems? And, you know, you can try to tease that out in an interview, but some of it's, it's, it's sort of hard because they're, they're, they're hidden deeper um, parts of, a, of what makes a person tick. And these things, you know, have a way of sort of helping you to, to bubble that up to the surface more quickly. Yeah. Okay, great. And I, th I think a point you made, and certainly, you know, in discussions I've had in the, the past with you about the, uh, the testing data is to your point, it's, it's just more data and it, it yeah. shouldn't be viewed as a go, no go piece of data that it's it's part of the whole picture and you're just trying to get a little more detail in that picture and to your point maybe even some confirmation of the interview versus the data yeah no i think that's exactly right that's how um, they're best used that's what they're that's the intended purpose but unfortunately you know, a lot of companies use uh, different types of testing um but you know they don't actually train people properly on how to interpret the results. And, and whenever that's the case, um, I think you're more likely to see people putting too much weight on any one data point. Mm -hmm. Like the classic one, for instance, is on the problem solving um, questionnaires that are often administered, whether, whether it's the, you know, the Wonderlook or the Ravens or some of these others. You know, if people don't really kind of understand how to interpret those in context, what you often see is people sort of getting latched on to a certain score and saying things like, well, we're not gonna hire anyone unless they score at, you know, X. Right. Um, and then, you know, they fail to kind of recognize that, well, there could be lots of reasons why people, you know, didn't happen to do well on that particular test that particular day. Um, so, you know, I think that you have to be careful about that, not get too literal about interpreting the tests, um, not get too attached to any one specific number or score and ideally sort of combine it with lots of other data points from your interview, other tests, and 
try to sort of triangulate all of that data into some, again, themes and patterns that tend to all sort of point in the same direction whenever that's the case. And I think it gives a person a lot more confidence in right. being able to make a hiring decision. Okay. Fantastic. Well, Patrick, once again, uh, we covered our three questions and uh, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast. We appreciate your insights. If people want to learn more about Patrick and LDW, they can go to the LDW website at www.ldw-w.com. Any feedback or questions can be sent to me via the uh, LinkedIn Business Transformation 101 postings, and um, I'll get any questions for Patrick back to him. Um, So thanks to all of our listeners today. Uh, Stay safe out there, and please join us each Wednesday for a new volume of Business Transformation 101. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here.